Good morning. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, we are uh, we consider it a privilege that you're here with us, and we want you to feel welcome. We want you to know that we'd love to get to know you better. Um, this is a uh, little kiosk right over here, and right after the service, there'll be somebody there that would love to meet you and just give you a packet of information about Crosspoint, and um, that's about it. We just want you to get to know us and do everything we can to help you know who we are and then maybe give us an opportunity to get to know you a little better as well. But welcome this morning. We're glad you're here. We're going to start with prayer, and we typically pray for another church in town or another church in the area, and then we always try and pray for our government. Uh, Paul tells us in, uh, in his letters to pray for those that rule over you and uh, to do that consistently and that the men should lead out in praying for that. And so that's what we're going to do. So y'all join me in prayer and then we'll get to the uh, message here. <clears throat> Father, we want to lift up. Uh, I don't have anything specific in mind or a person specific in mind, but just the, uh, just the political climate that we're in. Uh, and even the racial tension that comes with the things that are happening. <clears throat> we, uh, we sometimes don't even know what to pray about that, but we want you to know that it is, uh, that it unnerves us and maybe causes us to wonder and be doubtful and fearful. And we want to say that we trust you <clears throat> and ask you to heal this climate, help the church be a part in whatever way you see fit of healing a tense climate of, um, that just is unnerving, and just kind of awkward and uh, evil in many ways. And I pray you'd give us the church and the church members that are the church, that you would give us a voice into it, an opportunity to speak into it and bring peace. And that we'd be ready. And not fearful, but bold in that. <clears throat> I also want to lift up Crosspoint Community Church, a church that came out of this church and joined up with other families in Rockwall. They've had a uh, rough couple of weeks. Lance Shoemaker is preaching this morning after a root canal on Thursday. And uh, one of their elders is out of town. And I just pray that you would be sufficient today and this morning as Lance preaches and as those people gather, that they'd be reminded again of the eternal perspective that they have even when things go south, <laughs> even with things that seem insignificant, small health problems or just being tired and weary, that you would encourage that people this morning with your perspective and your truth and that you would fan into flame their gifting and that they would burn brightly as they engage one another and engage their giftings as a church to one another and to that community in Rockwall. We are grateful for another opportunity to come back together and get the right perspectives this morning. I'm so thankful for this time <clears throat> that you allow us to have without fear of being executed or imprisoned for this. Uh, we are grateful that we get to enjoy another reset of our hearts this morning by hearing the good news about Jesus and the perspective you give us and how good you are. 
we're thankful for that. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for Jesus and his work on the cross. And we rest in that in this moment. And I pray you'd speak clearly this morning through me. And that we would leave here knowing more truth, but walking in it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Whenever I have opportunity to preach, the last few years I've been in the pastoral letters. We started in 1 Timothy, I think, three years ago. Uh, I typically preach five to seven times a year. And so when I get that opportunity, I try to stick with these pastoral letters, letters from Paul to pastors, to churches, and try and walk through them so that there's not something that we can just skip around or I just pick a topic. Uh, that's how Ben and Scott preach. And so I've chosen to preach through these pastoral letters. And we just wrapped up at the first of the summer, First Timothy. Finally made it through that after two or three years. And so we're going to start Second Timothy this morning. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 1. We're going to press through Second Timothy and then hopefully... Uh, before the Lord comes back, we'll make it to Titus. <clears throat> you heard me use this word in my prayer, perspective. You've heard the phrase, perspective is everything. That gets thrown around a lot. Uh, or maybe perspective changes everything. And it's no more true for anyone besides the believer, that perspective is everything. Perspective changes everything. Definition of perspective would be a way of thinking about something, a point of view, a lens that you look through. I love this definition. Perspective is a true understanding of the importance of certain things. A true understanding of the importance of certain things. And that's what we're doing today. That's what we do when we gather, is we, we come back to a true understanding of very important things. There's so many voices all week long. So many voices in my heart from outside of me all week long that distort, that change, that consume, that can distract me from what is true. And Ben's quote will be on this, and I've said it for years, but this is the one hour in the week where things make sense again for me as a believer in my faith. This is, this is the time when I hit that reset button where I hear again what's really true, and then I also remember the things that I've seen and I, the way I've thought during the week may not be true. And so perspective is everything. So let me give you a little bit of background because that's what I want us to look at in the first seven verses this morning is Paul's perspective. He has an unadulterated perspective. And I want us to see his perspective, but we need to get into the story here and see what's happening. Things are bad. And what I want for us to see this morning is when things go south for you, when things are troubling... Maybe you even put the label suffering on it. Maybe even persecution. Maybe. But when, when things go south, when things get rough, the key for the believer is perspective. That's our remedy. So let's look at how things are going for Paul here, okay? There's some background before we get into this verse 1. And let me just tell you where we're at. 
and kind of what this letter is going to be saying as we walk through it. But here's what's happening. As Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. He's in prison for believing in Jesus. He's in prison for starting churches and for preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he's been in prison for it. His first hearing in court didn't go well. We find that out later in the letter. His first hearing, no one stood up for him. He had no defense, no lawyer. He is all alone. There's likely little or no believers around him or have any knowledge in this area that he's even on trial. You talk about loneliness. He is all alone in Rome. No one defending him. No one standing by him. And the first hearing didn't go well. No one stood up for him. He was ridiculed. Made fun of, in other words. And no one's with him. He's all alone. In jail. This is where we get... You, you, we hear in this Second Timothy, we hear... Uh, Paul say in chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Right? You, remember, you all know that verse. You've heard that quoted. You've probably seen it on a t-shirt. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And this is why Paul says that. Because he knows at his next hearing, he's going to be ordered to be executed. So not only is he alone, but he's just kind of figuring out that at the next hearing... And soon after that hearing, he'll be killed. It's the end. This is it. For his faith. It, it's getting bad. Okay, if, if we're thinking through this temporary lens of life, it's not good. <laughs> life is not good for him right now. The life that we see. This is his last letter. This is it. The encouragement and instruction that's contained in this letter is to his best friend or really what he calls his son. The closest thing that he had to family was Timothy and he writes a letter to him. In the midst of this bad, awful situation, he writes a letter to Timothy. Paul is facing the worst that this life has at this point. 1 Timothy is a letter full of instruction and order for the church. The first, first Timothy, the first letter he wrote was full of instructions for the church and who the church is supposed to be. And now 2 Timothy, he turns his focus to Timothy personally. Paul boils it down in this letter, right? He, it's, the end is here. He's about to die. This will be his last letter and he probably knows it. He's probably not going to see Timothy again and he knows it. And so he boils it down in this letter. This letter will be a letter where he encourages, instructs Timothy to suffer well. That, that may sound funny to you. How can you encourage someone and then tell them, suffer well? <laughs> That's not encouraging to me. <laughs> when I think through the temp temporal lens, when I think through what's in front of me, it doesn't sound encouraging to hear, hey, you're going to suffer, you need to do that well. But that's his encouragement. He will encourage Timothy to never forget Jesus. Never forget what Jesus has done. He constantly reminds him in this letter, do not forget Jesus and what he's accomplished. In this letter, he will 
encourage Timothy to watch your life and flee from sin every day. He will tell him, you stay away from people who aren't preaching the gospel. In fact, you get them out of your church. But you constantly pray that they'll repent. You get heretics out of the church. Get them out and don't listen to them and don't hang out with them. But constantly pray that they would repent and come back. He also encourages Timothy to act like a soldier. He brings the army language in, in this letter. You're a soldier. This is getting real, Timothy. You're a soldier. Be a good one. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. There are 33 imperative verbs and no less than 27 commands to Timothy. Paul is boiling it down. It's the end, and he's not playing around. He never has, but this is getting crucial. And so that's where we find ourselves when he's writing this letter. Things are not good. So let's look at Paul's perspective and Paul's response to this situation. He writes a letter to his closest brother, someone he calls his son, in fact. Let's read the first seven verses and then we'll make a few observations and hopefully some application here. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love, and self-control. Let's look briefly at the greeting. This is a formal greeting. It's one that he's used uh, through most of his letters. And in this one, and then I think two or three others to the churches, he thanks God for them. All right? But there's two things here I want you to see. Number one, Paul's assurance of his faith is in a promise. I don't want you to miss that. Let's don't blow past that on the first, how he opens this letter. Yes, it's a formal letter. It's a formal greeting. But let's, let's look at what he's saying here. His assurance of his faith and his calling is based on a promise. And this is what I mean by that. Paul shows us here again. His confidence, his assurance of his faith and his salvation is not in what Paul has accomplished. It's not in all the churches he's planted. He's at the end of his life, and as he's writing this letter, his assurance in his faith is not in anything he has done or anything he has said. It's not even in the integrity of his belief. He doesn't look back and go, look how much I've believed. Look how long I've believed. Look how well I've believed. Look how much I love you, Jesus. His hope and assurance is on a promise of being saved in Jesus. Look at it again. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That's important for a little later. He is finding his hope in a promise. Something that God has said. God said it. God called me. He says I'm his child. He called me. And so it's true. Because he said it. It's a promise. And I believe it. That's where his assurance is found in the promise. Okay? And second, remember he's writing a letter to a timid pastor. If you were here for any of the first Timothy uh, sermons, Timothy is timid. He's, he's young, younger. This is his first pastorate, right? And Paul just left him in it with the elders at Ephesus, and he hasn't been back. And so he's faced heretics. He's faced people who don't want to listen, who want to change his sermons, who don't appreciate the gospel of Jesus, who are bored with him, and who are leaving to go listen to people who are more exciting but aren't preaching the gospel. It's been a hard run. And Timothy is timid. He's not the first one to stand up and speak with boldness. He's fearful, he's anxious, and he's timid as a pastor. And so, Paul is speaking to this guy once again with great affection. Great affection. Timid Timothy and Paul's deep love for him because of his investment. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember your tears. I long to see you that I'll be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. I wonder if Paul's not just saying this to encourage Timothy, but if he's also saying this to encourage himself, to see him write it out, to kind of say it to himself. Timothy has sincere faith. I left him with a deposit that is the good news about Jesus. I left him with a church. And it's good to remind myself that he's pressing on and his faith is real. His faith is real. His faith is sincere. And he has a heritage. So let's not forget that. Don't forget that, Timothy. You, this, isn't, this isn't just come to you on a whim. This isn't fake. This is real. Your grandmother believed it. Your mom believed it, and now you're believing it, and your faith is sincere. You have a heritage and a sincere faith. And I wonder if Paul's not saying that just to go, yeah, I left him there, and God's still working. His faith is still true. God has been faithful, and that's good for Paul. In prison, about to die, to remind himself, man, that was a good investment. That was a good deposit I made. That must be encouraging to Paul as well. His other encouragement here is that he's constantly praying for Timothy. His connection to Timothy is not what he wants it to be. There's no texting, right? He can't email Timothy, can't pick up the phone and get to him, climb into the story here. He can't connect with Timothy, and he wants to so bad, and he has to write a letter. And I almost hear Paul when he says, I long to see you. I remember your tears. I remember how hard it was to leave. And I can't connect to you like I want to. Enough with the letters. I want to be with you. Alas, I can't. But I'm reminded that your faith is true. And that's enough. To remember that your faith is true, that will get me by. To remember that you're still having faith in, in Jesus, that you're still believing, that's enough for me. Paul, what he does, since he can't text, since he can't email, 
Since he can't see him, can't hug him, can't instruct him, can't pat him on the back, what does he do? He prays. He prays for him constantly. That's what his faith allows him to do, is to pray constantly for him. Paul's taking his own advice here from Romans 12. Romans 12, 12. You can jot that down. He says, rejoice in a confident hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He's taking his own advice here. He can't get to Timothy. So what does he do? I'm going to be, I'm going to rejoice in a confident hope that Timothy has hope, that I have hope, and it's confident. I'm going to rejoice in that today, even though I can't see him, even though I'm about to die. Things are bad. I'm going to rejoice in the hope that I have. I'm going to be patient in this trouble, quiet, and I'm going to pray. And that's what he does. Paul takes his own advice here in a very bad situation. He rejoices in his hope, his faith. He is patient in this trouble, and he prays constantly. It's good medicine. He longs to be with him, and wouldn't that be sweet? Paul encourages Timothy in his genuine faith, encouraging him to see his own faith. Isn't it, isn't it good when, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but when someone maybe in your life group or maybe just randomly in the church says, hey, man, I, I see your faith. Faith is in the unseen, but when someone says, I see Christ in you, you, you you're faithful, I see you. Maybe you've been around some people that you were just getting to know and you haven't had the faith talk yet. They don't really know who you are. And um, that used to always happen to me on the golf course when people would we'd get through three or four holes after they, a cussing string had happened by them and they would say, hey, what do you do? <laughs> uh, I'm a pastor. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I knew there was something about you. I knew... But, but have, has that ever happened to you where people say, man, I, I've noticed there's something different about you. It doesn't surprise me when you tell me you're a believer. And maybe from another believer especially. Doesn't that feel good? Isn't that encouraging for somebody else to see it? And that's what Paul's doing here. That is Paul's response to an awful situation to get the closest person he knew, the person closest to him, and encourage them. You, are you seeing how crazy this looks? That things have gotten the worst they can for Paul. And his response is to encourage someone else. To encourage his closest family member. The closest thing he had to family. That was his response. Does he grumble? We don't see that. Does Paul beg God to get him out of prison? Just, just you've done it before, do it again. Break me out of here so I can go be with Timothy. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't do that. Does he try and just beg God, just take this away? Unfair. God, this is unfair. I've suffered enough. Shipwrecked. Beaten. Come on. Can, can I just see Timothy before I die? No, that's not what Paul, that's not his response. His response is to sit down and not, not just pine. I can imagine Paul saying, boy, I, I just wish I had a normal life. Why does this have to be so complicated and hard? No, he doesn't pray that. He doesn't think that. That's not his perspective. His perspective is the response to this situation that's not good is to sit down and encourage Timothy with an eternal perspective. Now, 
If you're sitting there thinking, man, I hope the sermon title is uh, Power, Love, and Self-Control. I hope that somehow Brad's going to show me how to fix my suffering. I hope that this passage, I mean, power, love, and self-control, that sounds like a pretty good fix, right? For suffering and trouble. I hope you see that our suffering well and our only hope to endure is to be encouraged again by what is true. Encouraged again by what is true. To be reminded of what Christ has accomplished. To be reminded that we have what we've been afforded in the Spirit. To be reminded of what we're called to and believe. And, and that belief hinges on our perspective. Persevering in this faith will hinge on your perspective. It will hinge on your perspective and the way you see things. On understanding true things that are important. And that your belief will hinge on how you see things. That's how it is for Paul. Paul has an unadulterated eternal perspective. It looks so different than the perspective I get tripped upon during the week. I don't, I don't naturally knee-jerk to an eternal perspective. I knee-jerk to those questions I was just giving you because those are the questions I've asked about my trouble. Just get me out of this. This is unfair. Why me? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you resolving this? And I want my knee-jerk to be an eternal perspective. I want my knee-jerk to be where can you use me? How can I encourage? I have a confident hope. I'm going to be patient in this trouble, and I'm going to pray constantly. That's what I want. My knee-jerk response to be like Paul. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, look at verse 6. For this reason. For what reason? Because you have a faith, and because it's sincere, and because you come from a long line of faith, I want to tell you something. I want to encourage you again. Do something. Here's some instruction. Fan in to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Timothy's been gifted. He's been equipped. He needs the reminder to fan in that flame again. And he's probably referring to Timothy's timidity. Right? He's probably referring to the anxiety. And, you know, 1 Timothy 5 tells us he had stomach problems. Well, he had stomach problems most likely because he was anxious and worn down by ministry. So what does he say? What's his instruction for that? Hey, chin up, brother. Here we go. You've been gifted. You've been equipped. I'm going to fan the flame here. Let's get, this is not the time to quit. This is not the time to retreat. This is not the time to question. It's, you get to work with your gifting given by the Spirit. I laid hands on you. I see your faith. Do not quit. Do not be timid. Don't be a coward with your faith. Chin up, back to work. Take heart. He's trying to inspire Timothy, right? I mean, he's trying to inspire him to not quit. I, things are bad, Timothy. And Timothy probably understands that, that he's probably not going to see Paul again. And he's probably not going to get another letter of encouragement from him. He's going to be on his own, I mean, with the church. He's not going to have Paul anymore. So Paul's word are, use your gifting. Keep preaching. Don't forget what I told you. Always remember Jesus. Act like a soldier. These are all things he's going to tell him, but he starts with this. Don't quit using your gifting. Now is not the time to not use your gifting in the church. Now is the time to fan that into a flame. Some of you know that 
my son Hank is uh, really into um, wilderness survival right now and uh, camping. And that's a nice way of saying he likes to burn things. And we like to set things on fire. He's, he's really good at it. He bought this um, flint and steel where you can start a fire without matches and get tinder and get kindling. And uh, we haven't accomplished that yet, but we're trying. And uh, I remember the first time when he and I did a fire on the back porch. He was probably two. And I, I bent down to blow on it to get it to, you know, the flame to come up and it to really burn. And he said, Daddy, don't blow it out. You know, he didn't understand that, that blowing on that fire, fanning it, was going to make it grow and burn hot. And that's what Paul's saying here. Man, let's go. Let's get the fire back, okay? Let's, let's get it going here. This is not the time. When things are dark and things are bad, is not the time to sit on your hands and be fearful and anxious. Now is the time. You've been gifted. Get after it, boss. Get after it. Let's go. Don't quit. But inspirational messages are tricky, right? Because you can be inspired all day long. I can inspire you all day long. But how do you, how do you actually do it, right? How, how, do you, how do you fan into flame your own gifting and your own work and your own service to the Lord and the church? How do you do that? How do you fan that into flame? I've got two prescriptive things for you here. And there's probably a long, exhaustive list of how to fan into flame. And uh, I just haven't written that book yet. I'm just saying there, these are two things, right? We've just come off a spiritual gift series, right? All summer. Of, of the various unique and beautiful gifts that are the spirit that, that find their ways into individuals and are unique, that build up the church. And so what has our response been to that knowledge that we are in fact gifted by the Spirit and called? What has been your response after this gifting series? Did, did you take that knowledge of these different gifts and go, man, that's really cool. That is so cool that so many people are gifted. It's such a neat thing and a blessing that God gifts the church and that He's given us a Spirit. And did we set that there and go, that's really cool, and then just walk from it? Or has your response, has my response been, no matter what's going on around me, no matter my circumstances, and especially if they're difficult, that's the time to say, what is my gifting? It's time to get to work. That's the remedy. Get to work. So what has our response been to that? How do you fan that into the flame? It's very simple. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see this as I'm reading it. Hebrews chapter 10, 22. Verse Beginning in verse 22, here's how you fan into the flame the gifting that God has given you. You stay among the people of God, and you be among the people of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying there is everything you've thought 
everything your heart is telling you, be, sus- be suspect of it. Be suspect of what you've heard all week and draw near to the people of God to hear again what's true. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. There's our promise. He promised us salvation. And we're holding to that promise. And he's faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's how you fan into flame your gifting. You draw near, you draw up with the people of God. And you've heard this before from this pulpit, but it has to be said again. Corporate worship, things like your life group, those, if those are optional for you, you, you may, as well, may as well just be, say, let it rain on my fire. Let it rain. Let it sprinkle. You know, we've got these little rains that have come through lately. They just knock the dust off the ground. But they'll, they'll get a fire down pretty quick. Let it rain. If this is optional, if life group is optional for you, then what you're saying is, man, just let it rain on my eternal perspective. You're throwing your hands up and you're saying, I, it's optional. I don't know that I really need the people of God consistently. I need a break. right? I need a break. I'm tired. It's been a long week. And when we do that, when we say that corporate worship and life group and being with God's people is somewhat optional, we're saying, just let it rain on my fire. It's not optional. That's how you fan into flame. The gifting is through using your gifting and being with God's people. Now, the second thing I have for you is this is just prescriptive based on where I'm walking with you and seeing you. Another way to fan into flame The gifting is to rest. To rest. Rest from good things. Rest from your work. Rest from your parenting occasionally. Get away, if it may be five minutes or five hours. Disconnect from your striving and rest. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book on eternal perspective. It's a wisdom book. It's a wisdom book on the eternal perspective. And you've heard some of the passages that come from Ecclesiastes, that vanity, vanity, all life is vanity, right? Everything you can see is just vain. Having eternal perspective, that's the only thing that's true. It's better when the day a man dies than when he's born. That's an eternal perspective. Life's going to be tough. Life's going to be filled with mirages and untruths and confusion and evil and sin, and it's all vanity. It means nothing. Unless you have an eternal perspective. That's what matters. That's what lands. That's what travels. Is the eternal perspective. And in Ecclesiastes 4.6, this is what wisdom says. Just listen to this. Ecclesiastes 4.6. One handful of rest, one handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving. What does he mean by that? One handful of rest is better than two fistfuls of striving. I I see you and how you move and the pace at which your families move. I know the pace at which my family moves and the things we're striving for, which may be more money, it may be more things, it may be more opportunity, it may just be better parenting. We strive after a lot of good things. They're not bad things to strive after. 
But when we strive hard, when we strive too fistful, it can consume you. It can consume you to the point, if you don't rest, you'll forget your eternal perspective. Because everything about our striving is temporal. Everything about our work is temporal, and it can lock you down and paralyze you into a temporal perspective, a temporary perspective based on what you see. And we can be so consumed with what we see, we forget that what's true is the unseen. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, ooh, just a handful of rest, just a handful of disconnecting, reminding yourself what is true, rest from your pace is better than grabbing two fists full of striving after good things. Be with God's people and figure out whether it's five minutes or five hours, a way for you to rest, turn your brain off, think about, meditate on, fill it with what God's Word says. Okay? That, that's how you fan into flame your gifting. is to be with God's people and figure out a way to rest. This is coming from <clears throat> a wisdom book, and we need it. Rest. Now, Paul goes on, lastly, to say this. Timothy, back to first, first, uh, 2 Timothy, in verse, chapter 1, verse uh, 7. <clears throat> Fan into flame the gifting which is in you. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-control. What he's saying to Timothy is, Timothy, you wonder if you have what it takes. Things are bad. I'm going to die. I know it's not fun. It's not hard. It's not easy. It's very difficult right now. Timothy, you think you have what it takes? You're being timid. Get back to work. Do you wonder if you have what it takes? You do have what it takes because you have Him, a God who is all power, all loving, and orderly. That self-control is maybe better translated discipline, order. You have a God who's powerful, who's loving, and He, he has all things in order. He's got this. Now, when I don't know about you, but when tough times come, when suffering comes, when tribulation comes, I feel powerless. I don't feel full of love. And I certainly don't feel like things are in order. Right? It just feels like everything's out of order. I've, lo I've lost control, right? Somewhere I lost control and something's gone south. I don't feel powerful. This fear is a word that he calls cowardice. Don't be a coward, Timothy. Remember what you have available to you in Christ. Remember what you have. You have power, love, and a God who is orderly. You may fail, Timothy, but the Spirit is forever competent. You may fail, Timothy, but the Spirit is forever competent. You may lack confidence, but the Spirit never disappoints and is never uncertain. Timothy, you may be timid, but the Spirit's bold. Timothy, you have that in you. Church, you have that in you. You have that available to you. 
When we yield to the Spirit, we have access to power, a supernatural ability to obey Him when things get really dark. We, have a, we, are, we are given a supernatural ability to obey Him even when things are really bad. It's, a, it's access. We have love. This is agape love. We have the ability to continue to love one another and be unselfish even when things go south in our life. Whether it's financial, sickness, loss, grief, you have the ability to love through it and encourage one another in it. And you have a God who is orderly, who works all things for the good of those who love Him and live according to His purposes. He is not caught off guard by your trouble. That's good news. He is ordering and orchestrating all things. And so when things go chaotic for you and what you see, we need to remember the eternal perspective. It's not chaotic for Him (laughs) right now. He, He is ordering all of this. He's given us plenty of design, plenty of order to follow very practically as the church. He is a God of order and discipline and self-control even when I feel like things are out of control. I have that in my God. This is a promise of sorts. It's available to you because it's who He is. There's another promise. Timothy, here's another promise. You have power, love, and order available to you even when things are coming unwound. It just doesn't always feel like it. Act on truth, Timothy, not emotion. Now, I'm not dismissing emotion here. Emotion is real, and emotion is something we listen to and we consider. But we don't always act on it. We act on what we know to be true, perspective. You see it? We act on truth. What we need the most when things get really bad is this eternal perspective that Paul has as he writes a letter to Timothy from prison about to die. To rejoice in a hope that we have, to fan into flame this gifting, to be patient in the tribulation, and to pray constantly. That's our response. I wish this was my knee-jerk response to trouble, but it's not. But I want to walk in this And that's what's frustrating for me as a pastor this morning because I want to give you a silver bullet. I want to be able to fix this for you tomorrow morning. I really want to be able to say to you, this is how you fix your trouble. But that's not what we've been given. But what we have been given is access to a good God with good promises who says, I am not out of control. I am still loving. And I am all powerful. And we have access to him. Don't stop using your gifting. Keep pressing on. I want you to turn one more place as we close. Romans chapter 8. It's just another place in your Bible where Paul is saying some of the same things. But he says them in a pretty sweet way. A very encouraging way. Romans chapter 8. Verse 15, we're going to read verse 15 through 18 and then 26 and 28. Paul's saying some of the same things here that he's telling Timothy. 
Verse 15. Christian, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, cowardice, timidity, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. There's your promise. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The promise is you're his. The promise is it won't be easy. The promise is there will be trouble. But the promises don't end there. Verse 18. I consider, listen for his perspective, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The things I see, the trouble doesn't compare to what I know to be true that I can't see. I want to say that again. What, what I see, the trouble that I see, doesn't even compare to what's true in the unseen. It doesn't even compare. It's called faith. Believe that it's true. For the, are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Now look at verse 26. He goes on. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Believer, if it's so dark for you that you're paralyzed and you don't even know how to pray, he's praying for you. Do you hear that? Not only does he give us the promise of access, not only does he give us the promise of power, love, and self-control, order, not only does he give us the promise of an eternal inheritance, he says, in the meantime, when you're paralyzed by anxiety, loss, grief, fear, I'm praying for you when you don't even know how. He's a good God. He, those are good promises that we need to remember, right? We need to think perspective. How are you thinking about what you're seeing? How are you thinking about what you're seeing? Paul has this unadulterated, eternal perspective. Surely, if the remedy for Paul's trouble was to have an eternal perspective, Surely, for our trouble, isn't it, wouldn't it be the same? Wouldn't it be the same that the remedy for our trouble would be keeping eternal perspective? I was talking with Christy uh, yesterday, and she, she's been reading this sermon by David Pallison entitled, Christ's Grace in Your Sufferings. And he, he, made, he made this statement, No important truth for the believer contains the word just in the punchline. No important truth for the believer includes the word just in the punchline. And what he means by that is when we, when we see this eternal perspective and then we want to walk in it, we don't just go do one thing. You know, this is what I was talking about a while ago. I want to be able to fix it. I want to be able to tell you, this is what you just go do. You just go do these three or four things this week, and man, you're going to walk in power, love, and self-control. Boom. Just, just do these three things. When the way that we walk in power, love, and self-control, and not in timidity, not in fear, 
is to have an eternal perspective and to believe the things that he's promised. That's how you walk in it. Believe the things that he's promised. And that's how we walk in this. I wish there was some way I could just flip the switch for you. But he's calling you to believe that he's powerful. He's calling you to believe again that he is loving. He's calling you to believe again that he has got this handled. He is in order. It is not chaotic to him. When we go to the supper here in just a second, I want to, I want to read this passage. It's one we read often. I want you to listen for the promise. Listen for the eternal perspective in 1 Corinthians 11. You can turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Jesus talking. This is my body, which is for you. Promise. A gift. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, we are a people who need to remember and be reminded. Why? So we can have the eternal perspective. It's what we need daily and weekly. That's why we take this supper every week because we need the reminder. We need the perspective. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Another promise. When we take this bread and this cup in a minute, we're proclaiming that we have a new covenant with him that's not like Israel's. We have a new covenant covered in blood. Okay, And we're going to eat bread that he gave himself and he's promising that this is what will sustain you until he comes back. What will sustain you? He will. And taking him, taking it, taking this supper is a good reminder of the eternal perspective that we need. Let's distribute the elements.